A Focus Summary of Chapters 17 and 18 of Frankenstein The creature made his proposition more explicit. He wished Frankenstein to create a female for him. He demanded it, as a right he could not refuse to concede. But the monster's story had enraged Frankenstein, and he did refuse, saying nothing could compel him to create another being whose wickedness might desolate the world. Rather than threatening, the monster tried to reason with him. He had become malicious, he said, because he was miserable. He was shunned and hated by all mankind, and pitied by no one, not even his creator. If he could not inspire love, he would cause fear, and would work at Frankenstein's destruction until he desolated his heart. Having become animated with rage, he again tried to return to reason. For the love of one creature, he would have made peace with the rest, but that was a bliss that could not be realized. Instead, he demanded Frankenstein create a female creature as hideous as himself. They would live cut off from all the world, but they would have one another. He begged Frankenstein to show him this one expression of sympathy and fulfill his request. Frankenstein felt there was justice to his argument. Did not he, as his maker, owe this being whatever happiness he could bestow? The monster saw the compassion in his eyes and pleaded with him to consent. Then the monster and his companion would go to live in the wilds of South America, and neither Frankenstein nor any other human being would see them again. Frankenstein expressed skepticism. He felt sure the monster, who longed for the love and sympathy of man, would return again to seek it, and when it was inevitably denied, his evil passions would be renewed. But the monster swore he would quit the company of man forever. Again, his words stirred Frankenstein to compassion. But when he looked upon the monster's hideous form, he was again overcome with horror and hatred. Still, he felt he had no right to withhold whatever small portion of happiness he might give. He questioned how he could trust the monster's promise to be harmless, given all the malice he had already shown. But the monster insisted that the love of another would destroy the cause of his crimes. Frankenstein reflected on the monster's story. He recalled the promise of virtue he had shown before the cottagers blighted all kindly feeling with their loathing and scorn. He recalled, too, the demon's threats against him. And after a pause, he concluded that he would consent, on the monster's solemn oath that he would quit Europe as soon as his demand was met. This promise was made, and then, perhaps fearful Frankenstein might change his mind, the monster quickly disappeared. As night fell, Frankenstein descended toward the valley through a scene of wonderful solemnity, and he pleaded with the stars to crush in him all sensation and memory. 
Morning had dawned before he arrived in Geneva and presented himself, haggard and wild, to his family. He loved them to adoration, and looking upon them, he resolved that to save them he would dedicate himself to his abhorred task. Weeks passed, and Frankenstein could not collect the courage to recommence his work. He had heard of some discoveries made by an English philosopher that would be material to his success, and he thought he should visit England. But he shrank from taking the first step. Meanwhile, his health had improved and his spirits risen, and his father, seeing this change with pleasure, sought to eradicate in him any remains of melancholy. One day, he pulled Frankenstein aside and asked whether his lingering unhappiness arose from a reluctance to marry Elizabeth. He thought perhaps that Frankenstein felt bound in honor to her, knowing that the prospect of their marriage brought happiness to his father's declining years. Frankenstein assured him that he loved Elizabeth, and that all his own hopes were bound up in the expectation of their union. His father was relieved, and asked whether they might therefore solemnize the marriage immediately. Frankenstein did not feel he could enter into a union with Elizabeth while he had the deadly weight of his promise hanging around his neck. He must perform the task first, and let the monster depart forever with his mate. Also, the completion of his work required that he first journey to England, and anyway, he did not want to perform his loathsome labors in his father's house. He told his father, therefore, that he wished to visit England, and his father, glad that after so long a period of melancholy he might take pleasure in the idea of such a journey, was glad for him to go. Not wanting Frankenstein to go alone, his father arranged that he would be joined in his travels by Clerval. Though Frankenstein had desired solitude, he was glad to be saved from hours of loneliness, and glad that the presence of his friend might keep the monster away. He set off for England, and it was understood that he would marry Elizabeth as soon as he returned. One feeling haunted him and filled him with fear. He would be leaving his loved ones unconscious of the monster's existence and unprepared for his attacks. But he allowed himself to be governed by instincts, and they told him the monster would follow him and leave his family alone. He left in September, and Elizabeth, concerned that without her care he would descend again into grief, bade him a silent, tearful farewell. He met Clerval in Strasbourg, and they journeyed together from there. Clerval was alive to all the beauty of the shifting landscape, while Frankenstein was always occupied with gloomy thoughts, haunted by a curse that shut up every avenue of enjoyment. They sailed from Strasbourg to Rotterdam and on to London, all the while passing through the picturesque scenes of the variegated landscape. And even Frankenstein sometimes gazed on the cloudless blue sky and felt pleased. Clerval enjoyed a happiness seldom tasted by man. 
Frankenstein reflected on Clerval's words of wonder and admiration, and recalled him as being formed in the very poetry of nature, as a man of wild imagination, ardent affection, and devoted friendship. He then expressed haunted questions that revealed, more clearly than ever before, that Clerval was now dead. He then returned to his tale. He and Clerval had arrived at the Cliffs of Dover, and soon they saw St. Paul's Cathedral towering over the city.